Hi, Charles. I'm, I'm here. Good. I see ya. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello, everyone. Questions and hopefully answers tonight. Hi, Charles Marshall here. I'm in for Neil Garfield. And this is Thursday, June 29th, 2017. Good afternoon for those in the Western time zones and good evening to those in the East. T.L. Anderson will join me tonight as my co-host. And we will be looking at... Yes, hello, T.L., We will be looking at alternatives to pleading, how to streamline complaints, whether you're on the plaintiff's side or even when you're on the defendant's side, bringing either a counterclaim or a cross-complaint, depending on which court you're in, federal or state. We'll be discussing all of that and how to use this strategy to, to move your case forward against the lender. Uh, and I am broadcasting live from San Diego, California, and I'm brought to you on behalf of the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to a Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, We ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our main number. Pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Now, TL, it would be helpful to our listeners if you would give a brief introduction of what we will be discussing during the show today. Well, I think that a lot of our readers are are perplexed about exactly how to get discovery into the record. You know, they they make their discovery requests, the bank comes back with something ambiguous, and they don't really know how to compel discovery. Therefore, down the road, they end up, you know, losing on summary judgment or something else because they didn't obtain the discovery that they should have had up front. So I'm wondering if you would communicate to the listeners how to best compel discovery. Um, With discovery, one of the most important aspects to streamline what you're asking and streamline what you are propounding 
And part of the way you do that was uh, essentially provided on on the the Neil Garfield blog today as a sweetener for the show today. We really need streamlined pleadings in some of these cases uh, as a strategy for making specific cases go forward. And Neil recently and what do you had mean a by streamlined pleadings. Well, Neil recently had a consultation where he was able to convey to the attorney he was consulting to that there were specific instruments, uh, which, of course, had the usual chain of title violations. And specifically, there was one where there was an assignment that allegedly had been signed by an authorized person from from MERS as nominee for BNC Mortgage. And BNC Mortgage had ceased to exist three years earlier. So now while some courts are treating that type of transaction as voidable, there are still courts and even some judges within California who will properly treat that as void. And the other aspect to Neil's advice in that matter was looking at an appointment of the substitute of the substitution of trustee by the assignee of again that void assignment. When you can narrowly target the relief you're asking for and the associated causes of action, for instance, in that particular complaint, that particular complaint may be as simple as a cause of action for cancellation of instruments. And even in California, where some judges will say, well, that complaint for cancellation of instruments, you're asking for a remedy, not a cause of action. One advantage when you streamline your pleading, the actual opening complaint, or even an amended complaint, one advantage to streamlining everything is that you can get the the opposition, get the lenders and servicers to respond to very targeted uh, pleading demands. And the way that relates to the, the discovery that you were mentioning earlier, TL, is that then your discovery demand is also going to be very narrowly tailored. And that can be... And so you're talking about a big specific advantage. and narrow. Right. You're able to get the discovery content that you put into the discovery much more narrowly tailored uh, in order to to get a good response and a more productive response from the opposition. Okay, Charles, how about about in discovery when the bank claims that the information you're demanding doesn't exist? I have to say that's something that borrowers throughout the country, they hear that excuse all the time, and that that can create real issues for our side. Uh, sometimes it's it's a matter of narrowly tailoring who is actually the target of the discovery. For instance, where you're in a judicial foreclosure state and the borrower is on the defense side there's going to be a verifier of the complaint, you know, the complaint that you're a defendant for. 
just as right. a plaintiff's complaint where the borrower is, you know, it is the plaintiff in, let's say, California, in a non-judicial foreclosure state like California, there the complaint verifier is the borrower, our clients. But in a judicial foreclosure state, the complaint verifier is going to be some bank official, some service official typically. And if that person gives basically, or to put it another way, if the servicer or the nominal trust holder answering on behalf of that individual provides a discovery response that is just really wishy-washy and is not, not at all substantial, or they claim they don't have the documentation, they don't have uh, the specific documents that are being requested. One way to get around that is to depose that individual. Now, uh, another type of individual where this kind of discovery can be pursued uh, would involve a witness who is attesting somewhere in the chain of assignments to having possession of the note at some time because there there will be certifications of possession to attest to the the servicer or whoever's claiming to have the note when they actually have it now if they don't have it and they're claiming they don't have it that would be a thing that we would want to expose prior to, to trial and again if we take that party into a deposition, again, this could be either from the defense side where the borrower is or on the plaintiff side where the borrower is. You take that, that individual who's claiming to have the specialized knowledge about possession of the note. You take the, him or her into a deposition, and depositions are very open-ended. Even compared to written discovery, there are a lot more issues that you can cover, and you can really expose dissembling. You can you can expose outright lying. You can expose double dealing, where there's a conflict of interest between the individual and what they're supposed to be attesting to. Another area in the pleadings where, again, you can use this streamlined pleading approach. And, and one thing I will say, just as a caveat to what we're discussing right now, even if the person in question that you're, you know, that you might be deposing or that you're doing the written discovery against, even if this is a more conventional a complaint with let's say seven or eight, 10 causes of action, these principles would still apply. It's just that you will be able to impart them more straightforwardly and in a more fine-tuned way where everything is streamlined down to, let's say, a declaratory relief or an injunctive relief like cancellation of instruments. Uh, so one of these other areas is where you have an affidavit in support of summary judgment. Now, any motion for summary judgment, typically there's going to be an affidavit or declaration required. Now, that individual, when they're attesting to the legal requirements needed to win that motion, they are absolutely exposed. And you start with written discovery directed at that individual, 
And then if you get back again, responses where they claim they don't have documents or the way they claim they've reviewed a document doesn't look very detailed, again, you can use a deposition to expose those deficiencies. And one other area is where you have an asset manager, a trustee, or the master servicer of a plaintiff named trust. Now, there you're getting higher up on the food chain and deposing those types of individuals, you might get more pushback. You might have more difficulty getting, getting them actually in front of, front of a deposition. But in certain cases, that is going to be worth pursuing. Well, it seems like if you started um, by subpoenaing the representatives of the trust, you could just bypass the servicer and go right to the party that is providing the instructions that's driving the foreclosure. Why, why isn't this done more often? Is there some veil of, of corporate protection, or what is going on here? I think one of the reasons, reasons it isn't done, it has to do with strategic planning, and another reason it isn't done is, frankly, resource allocation. I mean, our side, the borrower side, often our resources are spread much thinner, to put it mildly, than what the servicers or the, what I call the nominal trust holders have. And you, you've hit on a really good point, TL, uh, because if you can really get at the trust as opposed to the servicer, you're more likely to be able to get sort of first-level evidence that will be very helpful at trial. Again, whether you're on the defense side or the plaintiff side as the borrower, the more evidence you can get into trial or the more you can get declarations or portion of a transcript from a deposition that shows the lack of knowledge or a lack of documentation or, in another case, may show that, yes, they're documents, but they don't the, – the documents that are provided show – that, yes, there's a, a broken chain of assignment, and, yes, the purported holder of interest really doesn't hold that interest. So the short answer of what, of, of what you're saying, TL, I mean, to, to, to kind of direct my response to you in a, in a succinct way, it really comes down to money and resource allocation. And you are going to get pushback um, the, the borrower's attorney is going to get pushback when they try to depose these people and get them to provide real information. But it's, it's absolutely an area where these cases should go. And this all kind of loops back into having more streamlined pleading where you can get that type of uh, cause of action, where you can get it to move forward and get past a mirror that could be a really big deal because if you're pleading more causes of action, that can be very effective and it, and off it is very effective. Um, but the important thing to remember is your causes of action always must go past an initial demurrer if that's what you're facing. So with the borrowers on the plaintiff side, it's absolutely critical for, their, for them to get their case past demurrer because if causes of action do not go, do not go past demurrer, then the discovery and all the other types of activity, the judge is never going to see that and never review that. 
Okay, another way we have a lot of, yeah, it, it actually does. I think people are confused because they think they have all this outstanding evidence as far as a break in the chain of title and that that should be sufficient, but it's not. And a lot of the time we see that um, the homeowners are purchasing these securitization audits, which some are very helpful and some aren't, but most of the, um, the homeowners don't recognize that that cannot be used as evidence in a court of law and that the person doing the audit is not permitted to make conclusions of law. And so I think that, you know, the homeowner goes in there thinking I have all this evidence and then finds out that, you know, most of it is worthless and they, they're not sure how to overcome that. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, you know, part of the issue here, uh, as, as you yourself have uh, referred to at, at certain times, TL, is that you really need a strong investigator, a strong forensic analyst, basically, to do the proper vetting and do the initial take on what documents show, what they don't show. And then you need that person to be available to testify in court and essentially get get the uh, documents uh, move forward. And that's, you know, that's a really big deal. I mean, somebody like Bill Padalo, for instance, I think he's a good example of, of what's needed to move these cases forward and the, the type of investigator skill that needs to be brought into the pleading stage especially. And then yeah. also that, that individual can be available at trial uh, to act as a, a direct witness related to these documents. And what I like about what Bill does is he doesn't read into, you know, he doesn't make legal conclusions. You know, he's stating what his findings are and and how it pertains to the way the trust was either funded or or how the note was assigned. And so he doesn't get into those areas of law where he doesn't have the expertise to, to testify. And he seems to be very successful doing that. No, I agree with you on that. And it it does make a big difference having these analyses done up in a way where where you where there is there is I mean there can be a tendency to have statements be kind of conclusory, like you say, essentially structured to be a legal conclusion. And with this type of evidence, it's absolutely critical that it stay on a factual plane essentially like a, like a declaration or an affidavit. I mean, one way, one way Neil puts this, uh, because it's so critical every, every phase of the, uh, of, of the lawsuit, uh, you know, you've got to get your discovery out. You have to respond to discovery. Um, you're going to be faced especially on the borrower side, with needing to do motions to compel in a number of cases. And those are very involved. And, you know, you need a, an attorney who's, who's specialized with, with getting those types of motions drafted and can also convince the other side to provide the, the evidence at issue so you don't actually have to bring the motion because that's an issue in and of itself. And then motions for summary judgment. I mean, the borrower side is is often subjected to those, 
Uh, there will be cases where it would be appropriate from from the borrower side to do a motion for summary judgment. I would say those cases, you're not talking about tons of cases. On the other hand, it can be effective um, as a strategy where you might have competing motions. Um, as Neil as Neil would say, and I heard him say this, you need to litigate like a mad dog and not be afraid to become a country club pariah. I mean, that's, that's specific <laughs> to attorneys, but I think you can analogize that even to uh, pro-per borrowers. They may or may not be, be inclined to go to country clubs, but they have to be absolutely dug in and, and prepared to go the extra mile uh, because it takes so much to move these cases forward and to keep, to keep borrowers in the game. On the other hand, where you can bring those important qualities together, it, it, it will end up oftentimes making a big difference, leading to real many, meaningful settlements and pushing the opposition to trial where they so often don't want to be, especially if it's a non-judicial foreclosure situation. Right. I was going to see if you would touch more on judicial foreclosure states where the typical borrower is the defendant and counterclaims or cross-complaints can be used to bring the legal pleading approach in. Oh, absolutely. Now, every state, you're going to have uh, the ability to file. And in state court, it's often called a cross-claim because even in California, there are there are lawsuits sometimes, just foreclosure lawsuits against borrowers. Typically, they'll be styled as a quiet claim action, and quiet, you know, a, a claim to quiet title, and it would be called a cross claim. And I know that that wording is often used in other states as well. If it's at the federal level, typically around the country, that's called a counterclaim. Uh, what's important if you're in a judicial foreclosure state, uh, if you're doing this pro per, I think you you would be well served to, to use the framework we've been talking about as a potential way of litigating either a cross-claim or a counterclaim. On the other hand, given the complexities here and the logistics of bringing a countersuit, uh, typically... I would think even in the vast majority of cases, you're going to be better off retaining an attorney to bring the cross-claim or the counterclaim on your behalf. And once that counterclaim or cross-claim is brought, you will be able to impart and, and bring into, you know, bring to bear into your case exactly the types of things we've been talking about. Um, as with so many legal procedures, advice. right, TL, and and the other critical thing here is that, as with so many legal procedures, there's there's a narrow time element on this. For instance, in California, uh, when let's say that you're sued by the lender rather than you're having brought a lawsuit, and let's say it's a judicial foreclosure. In that case, as with all cases of, of cross claims, 10 days basically from your response time, which 
okay, you're, you're still going to have 30 days to respond to any plaintiff's lawsuit, whether it's about foreclosure or something else. But you only have 10 days from the, the time you would file an answer. So in reality, you're really going to need to file your cross-claim at the time you file your answer. So it's really important that litigants understand if they've been sued recently or they're considering suing now, either way, if they're looking at a possible cross-claim, um, that needs to be affected much sooner rather than later. And yes, you can you can do it later, months later, but you have to ask leave of court and judges are not necessarily going to be sympathetic. We know that judges are often not sympathetic to our borrower positions. So it's much better to get that in the front end if you can. But if you are past the initial time period, whatever your state rules are on that, then you know, looking at a motion to to get leave to file the counterclaim might be the way to go. Uh, you do raise the cost of the case, of course, for yourself. And with the other side, when they've sued you, now they're going to have a cost incurred when you sue them back. So those are potential costs that you will be looking at. Uh, it'll be important for you to to win some motions to move your case forward. On the other hand, I have to say from a negotiation and leverage point of view, it's a really big deal to bring a cross-claim and a counterclaim. And it can change the balance of forces dramatically. Where a big institution sues you and they think they're gonna they're gonna squash you and maybe get an easy win or push you into an early settlement. When you cross-claim or counter-claim, you can really change that balance. Uh, you're not going to be able to get back to equality of forces. That's never going to happen in these cases. That's just something we deal with all the time. However, you will be able to switch things up on them to some extent, and it can make the other side much more open to settlement themselves and encourage them to be more civil in terms of how they they handle negotiations and possibly be re less ruthless with things like sale dates because now they know they're on the hook as well for potential damages related to your cross -play. That's an excellent strategy, but that's not used enough. So, Charles, we've got I agree, three and minutes I'm remaining. I agree, looking at that more and more. And so I want you to cover, if you would, um, what you think the biggest mistake regarding discovery that either homeowners or their attorneys make in litigation. Is there something uh, that stands the, out? I, I think the biggest mistake is, is frankly, the very single biggest, it's not knowing the precision of the rules, uh, especially when you're responding. Because as long as you give a legal response, you can make it very difficult for the other side to bring a motion to compel. And when you're putting forward the discovery, again, it's very critical that you know the, the specific rules. Because if you bring a motion to compel and you lose, you yourself are liable to the court and the opposition for sanctions. We can't say enough 
and, and TL, you and I and Neil, we all talk about this uh, repeatedly, how important discovery is in these cases once they move forward, and yet the, it's an area where uh, the craft has to it's an area where the craft has to be continually, continually honed and continually improved. Well, without without good discovery, you're never going to get into you know good negotiations. I mean, at that point, they know your weaknesses, and so you've got to get strong discovery before you even start before you even you know start to start the whole process. Oh, I agree with you, T.O. Well, it looks like we've come up to the end of our show. And I want to well, thank, thank you, very uh, thank much, you for joining me today. Absolutely. And if any of and our listeners just, would like to consult with you, would you please provide your contact information? Yeah, the best number to reach me at is 619-807-2628, and it's also on the blog as well. Well, we're a big we're big fans of your work, Charles, and thank you again for appearing on behalf of Neil Garfield. And I hope to uh, have you on the show in the next several weeks. Thank Absolutely, you again. GL. Yes, thank you. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information 